Hello, and welcome back to Psychiatry XR. I'm joined by my co-host, Faiza Arshad. Hi, Faiza. Hi, Kim. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, I'm excited too. We're really excited to have Jehoshaphat Allen Lee. Jehoshaphat is a seasoned professional with over eight years in software engineering and product design, and he excels in crafting innovative solutions across all sorts of domains. His passion for leveraging engineering and design skills shines through in tackling complex challenges and delivering high return on investment user experiences. And notably, he has worked on groundbreaking projects, including a 10-minute virtual reality experience on U.S. workplace gender bias, and also in my lab, producing an XR-enhanced protocol for behavioral activation in adults with depression. His portfolio features a VR app that transforms interactions with autistic children using interactive virtual humans and reinforcement learning. His brainchild, Thea, an AI-powered suite for desktop, mobile, and VR platforms, is described as revolutionizing a remote worker mental health support. So welcome, Jehoshaphat. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad to have this chance to talk to you because I know we work together, but I just had so many questions about you and wanted to know you even more. And it seemed like we never had enough time. So this is a great time that we have now just to really focus on you. And I really wanted to understand more about who you are and how you became so skilled, you know, in this XR software engineering and how you found yourself in the behavioral health space. And just for context for our listeners, I think it was a little less than two years ago that I met you, Jehoshaphat, through our Stanford Psychiatry and Immersive Technology Consortium, SPITC Network. Somebody had mentioned you when I was looking for someone to help me with this Stanford Translate grant because we're building this simple mobile app for guiding a virtual reality protocol. You would think at Stanford, we'd find somebody who could build an app, couldn't find anybody, we couldn't find anybody in the Silicon Valley that could do it. We were asking around who could build a mobile app that could also be converted at some point into an XR app via Unity in a Quest headset. And we searched the world. And even though you were located in Nigeria, you were the only one that could help us. And I thought how strange it was that, you know, we had to like really hire out this skill halfway across the world and would love to know more about your journey to get your skill set and maybe even taking us back to your childhood and educational story and walk us how you became so skilled that a university in Silicon Valley half a world away would seek you out because of your talents. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words. So originally I grew up in a small village in north central Nigeria where I did not have access to the internet until 2008 when I was almost graduating from high school. <laughs> yeah, so that was when I got access to the internet. <laughs> no way. Wow. Yeah. But prior to that, when I was about the age of 12, 13, I got introduced to the computers. And then 
from that moment, I became addicted to computers. So I started spending a lot of time on the computer, learning how to use different packages, started learning how to program. But while I was doing everything, I still had it in mind that someday I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the community I grew up, at, you are either a doctor, a lawyer, <laughs> a pharmacist. <laughs> so I see. in high school, you decide to either become a science student or an art student. So that is a mm-hmm. point you can choose mm-hmm. where you want to focus and how you want to streamline your learning as you go on. But I decided to do science because I always wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And that was largely inspired by the book, The Gifted Hand, the Ben Carson story. Mm-hmm. So it really inspired me. I've always wanted to be a surgeon. So throughout high school, while I was doing computing things in the background, I spent a lot of time studying to make sure that in college, I get to study medicine and surgery. <laughs> but wow. fate had something else in stock for me. And in 2008, we had a group of Canadians that came to my school in the little village I was schooling at, a Salian school. And then they brought internet to the school as a project. So I got introduced to the internet, which now expanded my opportunities. Mm-hmm. I got added to the internet. I started learning a lot of things online, mm-hmm. studying more and preparing more for life in college to study. But a year later, which was a final year in high school, completed my high school diploma. But to study medicine in Nigeria, you need physics, chemistry, uh, mathematics, biology to get admission to the university to study medicine. Mm-hmm. So this is something I've prepared for all my life. I wrote my final exams. The qualifying exams to get to the university came out. I passed that. But the physics I needed to now get admitted, <laughs> my physics was withheld by the examining body. So for no reason, my physics result was not released. So there was no way I could get admitted to study medicine without physics. What? Wow. <laughs> Yeah. So there are two options. He said I had to take a year off and then prepare to rewrite, or I had to wait till they release my physics. So I see. when that became the option that I had, my dad decided, okay, you have one year to spend to prepare to either receipt or for when they release it. So my dad decided, I have a friend who is a doctor. Let's go to him and then he can take you to a school where you learn some things about public health in the next one year. And then within the one year period, mm-hmm. you would have been prepared enough to rewrite the physics examination. I said, okay, let's do it. So we went to a neighboring town to meet the doctor's friend. But when the doctor's friend saw me, he had some information about me from my dad prior to meeting him. Mm-hmm. So when he saw me, he told my dad, you said this is your son and he's very good with computers. My dad said yes. So he told my dad, instead of him studying medicine, right, let him go and study computer science because the future of medicine is going to be heavily reliant on computers. Mm-hmm. And computer scientists will have a huge role to play in the future of medicine. So my dad said, okay, that's interesting. Let's give it a try. So my dad said I should go to a technical school, spend one year studying computer science, and then if I change my mind within that one year, 
the year I can also prepare for switching to medicine is still the same, that one year timeline. Yeah. That's okay. What's there to lose? <laughs> Let me give it a try. Mm-hmm. I ended up enrolling to study computer science. A year later, I realized that what have I been doing all my life trying to do study medicine? Mm-hmm. Computer is what I was actually born to do. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because while I was there, I realized that I could do with the computers. I got to know that I could build apps. I could build products that people could actually use and would solve their problems. That was when I told my dad, I think I want to stick with computing. And then I ended up studying computers for six years. And finally, in 2016, I graduated. I finished my undergraduate studies studying computer science with a concentration in human-computer interaction and artificial intelligence. Wow. But the turning point that brought me into XR happened between late 2015 and the release of the Microsoft HoloLens in 2016 or so. Mm. So it was my final year in my undergraduate program. And then we had this seminar in human-computer interaction. The professors in charge will give you a topic and then you talk about that topic, you study, research the topic, and then make a presentation. Somehow. Two weeks before that, I got a mail from Microsoft product about the release of the Microsoft HoloLens. Mm-hmm. And I was studying about the Microsoft HoloLens, reading about the Microsoft HoloLens. And then my professor gave me virtual reality as my seminar topic to research and make a presentation about. Mm-hmm. It can only be destiny, right? <laughs> so this was 2016 in Nigeria. I'm doing a presentation on virtual reality. Like, try to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a lot of research. That was where I came across the paper that was being worked on at the University of Southern California, where it talked about it's only a computer. Virtual humans increase willingness to disclosure. Mm. I think that was it. I saw that paper from the uh, University of Southern California sometime in 2014. Uh-huh. So through my research, I across that panel, I was like, okay, this is interesting. So mm-hmm. humans are more willing to disclosure when they are talking to virtual humans. Mm-hmm. Something that I have experienced myself because there's a conversation I would like to have that I would not want to have the conversation with my parents or someone else because the person could judge me. Yeah, They don't know what I'm feeling. They don't know my story. So they will just judge me based on where I'm coming from. After the presentation, I decided that, okay, I think this is where my career is. I'm going to build my career along this line of virtual reality, virtual humans, because mm-hmm. I already have the background through computer science, human-computer interaction, yeah. and artificial intelligence. So most of the skills I needed, I've already developed those skills because prior to that 2016, I've built a lot of mobile apps and web apps. And at that point, I was already getting bored of building web and mobile apps. Got it. But it was 2016, <laughs> and I was living in Nigeria. So to get access to VR headsets was one challenge. <laughs> mm. So since I already had some experience with Unity and building games, I decided to learn more about Unity and even go deeper to build upon the knowledge that I had. But I quickly realized that I needed a headset. There was no way I could afford the Microsoft HoloLens in 2016. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in sometime in 2017, I now realized that Google released the cardboard platform. 
And then there was a Google Cardboard. So I ordered a mock HMD from Amazon. So it's one of those headsets that you put an Android phone and iOS phone inside, and then mm-hmm. you build the app for the iPhone or the Android phone, slot the phone into the headset to make VR happen. So I used that for a while to learn, to put my skills into use, to build some apps. And then finally, sometimes late 2017, I enrolled into a training from Udacity, a Silicon Valley company, where I spent the next six months really building virtual reality applications for desktop platform that are powered by the Oculus Rift and yeah, and the HTC Vive, right? Oh, where did you do this or how did you find that? So I found out about the training online. Udacity is a learning platform like Coursera. Oh, yes. Udacity. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So I was learning on Udacity, but at some point I needed to use the Oculus Rift Mm -hmm. or the HTC Vive for the project I was working on. Mm-hmm. So that was when I realized that Judith, who is a pioneer of the SR space in Africa, she runs MEC3D, which is an SR lab in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. They have a lab. It's equipped with computers and VR headsets. And then they open it for the community. Anyone can come in to experience VR. Oh. So I realized, wow, that was interesting. So I got there one day. I experienced VR for the first time, full immersive VR with the Oculus Rift, said, okay, this has opened my mind to <laughs> bigger opportunities because now I've seen the extent towards which I can solve problems using the platform. So I started building from the lab. So at the end of my work day, my full-time job, at 6 p.m., my full-time job is 9 to 5. Within 5 to 6, I go to the lab and then I try to experiment and build stuff with the Oculus Rift they had in stuff. So I did that for a while until 2018. I decided it's time to resign from <laughs> my full-time job and concentrate on XR. Mm-hmm. So I stopped building web apps. I stopped building mobile apps and decided to focus on building for VR and augmented reality. So it was within that period as well. I realized that there was a lot of stigma in my community with regards to people who are who are on the autistic spectrum mm. to the point where children who are autistic, most of them, their parents find it difficult communicating with them. And then children who are not autistic, their parents tell them not to play or associate with autistic children because a lot of them even think that autism is a communicable disease. Some mm. things is, is a cause, others see it as a spiritual problem. Mm-hmm. So how can we change how people think and treat people on the autistic spectrum in my community? And I realized that the best way to put someone in another person's shoe is with VR. Mm. So that's something that really solves a problem beyond solving my personal problem. Because after the research I saw from the University of Southern California, I started building things for myself. Okay, can I build a virtual human that I can talk to, I can have some conversation with this virtual human in VR, the conversation I can have with my parents or my friends, can I have with this agent? 
So with mm-hmm. the skills I gained building that for myself, I said, okay, let me move this forward and build more. So <laughs> everything I learned from the days I was in high school to my undergraduate days, all the skills, everything, I saw, I saw them coming together because the same C-sharp I've been using for a while, Unity that I've been programming with, those are the skills I also needed to build for VR. And that's how the story from wanting to be a neurosurgeon and then my physics getting withheld landed me in VR. Wow. That's an incredible story. I love this story. I'm so glad that we made the time to do this podcast and dive into your fascinating story and all the serendipity. And yet it seems like destiny that that physics exam was lost. And so, yeah, (laughs) what are you doing with your time right now? So from the various experience I had building for some companies, I worked on some projects in Silicon Valley for some companies, all having to do with VR and the one with gender bias, Uh those that had to do with other forms of mental health scenarios, those that had to do with putting someone in another person's shoe, those that had to do with exposure therapy. Uh I worked on those kind of projects. And then sometime during the pandemic, I realized that a lot of people were working from home Mm -hmm. and a lot of remote working was going to be a thing. Then after the pandemic, people started going back to work, but a lot of people still decided to stay and work from there. So to make it easier for myself and the experience I had during the pandemic, because that was a a scenario and a time where there are a lot of conversations that needed to be had, but you can't just talk to anyone because people are dealing with all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. People mental say we are off the road. A lot of issues that people had that they were hiding from their friends and families. Now that yeah. they are locked up together with these friends and families, all those challenges yeah. are open for everyone to see. But with the stigma, people still cannot communicate with other people, cannot tell their story because of that fear of getting judged. So I decided to do some research. I sent some questionnaires out. So let's build a product now based on a virtual human. It will run on the phone. It will also run in VR headset. So this time it's no longer for me. I'm releasing this to the world. Mm. Everyone can use this. They can have full-blown conversation with this virtual human. And this was inspired by a research I saw from what Microsoft did in China that was very successful, but they now had to shut it down later. So based on what I read about the technical implementation of app said, okay, let me make something that everyone else can use and people will not have to keep all those issues bottled up. So I was primarily trying to answer the question, who do people talk to when they need someone to talk so without getting judged? Mm, got it. Then I sent surveys out to friends and other people in my network across North America, Europe, and the UK then I realized that this is a problem that people needed a solution to. So I started working on the app tier, which is what I've been working on full-time, even before the project that we worked on together. Uh So right now, tier is that place where most workers can come to to transform their mental health. 
in the long run, the app is going to be mobile, web, mm-hmm. desktop, and VR, mm-hmm. and also on AI. Because from the research, I realized that there are those who wanted to use the virtual humans only on their phone. There are those that wanted it on the web. There are those that wanted it mainly in the VR headset, where they can see a full-fledged human that they can have a conversation with. Yeah. So I realized that it's not going to make a lot of sense if I build the app just mobile, for instance. Then there are a lot of people that need this problem solved. They will not be able to assess it based on the user research and the interviews I conducted. So what I'm working on fully right now is here, trying to make it that go to place for remote workers when they need to transform their mental health. So it's that suite of app that has mental health solution built in. So you can talk to a therapist if you need to talk to a physical human through mm-hmm. video, through chat, and through audio-only communication. But if you are the person that you don't even trust humans, you prefer mm-hmm. a machine, there's also a full-blown AI that you can talk to. Yeah, there's AI. Mm-hmm. And if you prefer group scenarios, you can have pair-to-pair sessions with other mm-hmm. users. Mm-hmm. And then there are also scenarios where you can meet in groups and your mental health scenario can be dealt with. So everything was built into this platform. And all of that came from the idea I had and the data I got from the research that I conducted. Because at the end of the day, I realized that there are people in the community, people that I interviewed who wanted that problem solved. They were not ready to talk to a psychiatrist. They just wanted to talk to a computer. Because they don't trust (laughs) humans. Yeah, it all comes from that tendency to self-disclose to a computer over a human, that tendency. Exactly. And self-disclosure is so therapeutic and can lead to feelings of intimacy. So yeah, that makes sense. There's a thread of that self-disclosure kind of going throughout your work. So wow, blown away to hear so much from you. I know when we work together, you know, we're focused on one thing and everyone's kind of quiet. And so to hear all this and your narrative is just such an honor. And so you are pretty well positioned to kind of talk about too, since you have this skill, what do you think about the evolution of these digital mental health mobile phone apps? Because there's so many now. And do you have any predictions or thoughts about how all these mobile phone apps for mental health will convert or use or change into an XR technology? Or what do you think about the future? Since (laughs) no one knows the future, but with data, we can predict the future. I see a future where more people going full-blown XR, but we first need to deal with the barriers to entry. Mm -hmm. Even though a lot of people want to go full-blown XR, Mm-hmm. and everything maybe in VR or in AR, the barrier to entry will be one of the things that will hold a lot of people back. And then the issue of privacy, one of the issues and the concern I faced working on TR, for instance, during the research phase, people were concerned about their private data. So I see a future where, in as much as a lot of things will go into XR, there will still be those that we prefer being on mobile. 
unless on their iPhones or whatever phones, they will still prefer being on mobile. So I say a lot of the younger generations going into more XR because it will be more comfortable as that platform will be a platform that works well for them. But it's one thing when you see a full-blown virtual human and you can have an interaction with this person, you can have a conversation with this virtual human. There's a level of immersion that you get from that <laughs> that you can get from just seeing a flat screen in a 2D screen. So I say that I think it will converge in extra, but there will still be a lot of room for working on mobiles. This makes me wonder, can you talk about how receptive you found people to be towards using XR in your own community or in Nigeria? Because I know you kind of talked about how when you first discovered programming and this new realm of developing innovation and technology for medicine, you talked about how like your father was also surprised. And I just wonder how receptive are people to using XR innovation? Is it common to see companies adopting what you build, you know, XR applications? It's not common, not yet. And I think that's largely due to the barrier. It was, it's Nigeria, a lot of people cannot even afford an Android phone that can really do AR, not mention buying a VR headset. Because a lot of people buy phones first to solve their problems in terms of communicating with family members and friends. So right now, a lot of people that go to malls and open spaces where VR are made available for people to try out, the focus is mainly on games. And even companies, they are not investing in XR. Like I can tell you 98% of the work I've done in the past four, five years from Nigeria, there are not for Nigeria companies working on XR. Because <laughs> a lot of the focus is still on mobile and the web. And that's largely because of the community and the access that people have. More people have access to mobile phones here. More people still have access to the web. There are more people using even feature phones than those using smartphones. Okay, yeah, I didn't know that XR isn't very commonly used across Nigeria, but I think from what you're saying, you know, it makes sense that more commonly mobile applications are being used. I also noticed that in addition to being a software engineer and a VR developer, are you an educator for STEM or can you talk about your educational efforts with VR? Very efficient. So once I realized when I was learning, the barrier to entry first was not from the aspect of access to devices. Access to the equipment was one thing, but access to the knowledge was another. So I decided that the time I spent and the resources that I had to spend to acquire the knowledge, a lot of people will not have those resources to acquire the knowledge. So any effort, every opportunity that I have, I try to make sure that others can get access to the program. From my own experience, when I enrolled in the university program, the program was to be a six-month program. I think it was about $1,000 for each time, $1,000 right now is about 
a million naira. That is a lot of money. And between that period and now, the naira has been devalued a lot. So you need more dollars to solve the problem that you could solve with less dollar before. You need more naira to get more dollars to solve the problem that you needed to solve. So the amount of money that I spent, for instance, to acquire the skills, not a lot of people could <laughs> afford to spend that amount of money. So every opportunity that I have to spread that knowledge, I take advantage of those opportunities. Just to quickly follow up on that, what advice would you have then for students who are interested in self-teaching themselves? Is there any widespread advice that you can give about like learning product designing for other students in your community? So resources available, let's say you want to learn about product design for XR, or you want to learn about VR development, you want to learn how to program for VR, there's, a, there's so many resources on Coursera that you can get for free just by auditing the course. So you get to learn the skills without getting the certificate because at the end of the day, it's the, the skills, that's what matters, not the certificate in this sense. So you can audit courses on Coursera. And if I'm going to learn again from zero, I'll take full advantage of Coursera. And that's the advice I have for anyone. There's a wealth of knowledge on Coursera, everything you need to learn, and it's free. Oh, that's really great advice. One last question. What challenges did you find or do you find working internationally and cross-culturally? Like, I know we work together and of course there's the time differences, the internet issues. I know there's things like conversational style and the number of pauses between and, you know, New Yorkers and Californians often don't get along because of their conversational style. New Yorkers talk really fast and Californians are slower. What are some challenges you have found working internationally and cross-culturally? And do you have any advice or things you think people should think about when they do those sorts of projects? <laughs> That's a good question. Yes, the first one was internet, which was a big one. But like I previously said, internet is now cheaper. But another major challenge is electricity. Mm. If you don't have the resources to put in place ways to serve yourself with electricity, that can be a, a major challenge for someone who is trying to work internationally. So if mm. you are from an environment where access to electricity is a thing, then it's something you need to deal with, which was a challenge I had. Also, initially, I had a lot of issues with the accent. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> a lot of people could not. <laughs> yeah. So issues with accents in terms of you, yeah. I pronounce some things, and then it's either there's a different way the person from New York understands the same thing from someone else from Europe. Because in Nigeria... We learned in British English. The English here is British English. So initially it was hard to switch between British and American English when I'm communicating with those in North America. Yeah, there's different dialects and accents. Yeah. But it's easy with time. You'll quickly catch up. That is what I have to say for anyone who's facing that type of challenge. Uh, and I thought we worked together really effectively. and didn't stop us. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, any anything else you'd like to say or you think listeners need to know? Yeah, to my listeners and everyone, I would like to say 
Thank you for listening. Thank you for having me. And whatever it is you are trying to do with XR, trust me, you can do it. If I can do it from Nigeria, <laughs> you can do it from anywhere you are in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's really good advice. Follow your dreams and your visions. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jehoshaphat. Thank you. Yeah, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. And that's it for this episode of Psychiatry XR. We hope you gained a new perspective on using extended reality in healthcare. And thank you so much for listening. This episode was brought to you by Psychiatry XR, the psychiatry podcast about immersive technology and mental health. For more information about Psychiatry XR, visit our website at psychiatryxr.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tune in again next month to hear from another guest about XR use in psychiatric care. You can join us monthly on Apple Podcasts, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a reminder that Psychiatry XR was produced by myself, Kim Bullock, Faiza Harshad, and Jessica Hagen. And please note that this podcast is distinct from my own clinical teaching and research roles at Stanford University, and the information provided is not at all medical advice and should not be considered or taken as replacement for medical advice. And this episode was edited by David Bell, and music and audio was produced by the talented Austin Hagen. See you next time. Thank you.